Welcome to another episode of the Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and we have a rather interesting guest for you today. Now, every week we have a fabulous guest, but I guess this week is a little different from what we've been doing more, most recently, which is, you know, we've done a lot of music, we've had a lot of country, um, and we've been doing a lot of country drinks as a result of that. Uh, but we're sort of keeping it New York. And I, I'm going to give it away a little bit here, but our guest today is responsible for mainstreaming people like myself, metrosexuals, <laughs> um, as a columnist for the late but great details magazine that I actually shot for back in the day. Um, I'm not sure if he even remembers that or not. Um, he also worked on the creation team for the Real Housewives franchise, and we've had quite a few of the Real Housewives on the Shaken and Stirred show, so there you go. And he's now the editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. Please welcome branding and marketing wonder child, Scott O, who has the hardest last name to pronounce, and I'm going to give it my best shot here as Scott Omelanik. Is oh, that right? Perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Boom. So he says, but when you have an English accent, you get away with murder. So Scotty O it will be. Scott, how are you, mate? I'm great. Uh, it's terrific to see you, uh, Nigel. And not only, um, you know, we have another commonality, not just details, but... Uh, uh, when I was looking at your bio the other day, um, I saw that you got your start via the clothes show. Correct. So uh, back uh, a long time ago, I was the, uh, um, a guest host for a week uh, when Jeffrey Banks came here to New York on the clothes show. At the time, I worked at GQ magazine. Um, so we have that in common as well. That people, so for everyone out there who has no idea what Scott's talking about, because <laughs> I don't really talk, because this is really, we're talking ancient sort of prehistoric fashion, reality television details here. The clothes show was, is, could be the very first sort of reality television mo model competition come project runway show of its kind. Um, it was around in the 80s, maybe even before Selena Scott, Jeffrey Banks, whole bunch of English sort of celebrity fashion design people created this show. And um, I was a contestant on their very first modeling competition show um, in, I think it was 1988, 89, one of those, 88, I think. I did not win. and. Uh, I, I, anyway, that's the reason why my whole career took a shift and I didn't go on to do medicine. And instead, I am here talking to Scott. And that is fascinating. How amazing. <laughs> a little strange, right? So Jeffrey came to New York for a week for, for the show. And I, I was working at GQ uh, probably, you know, a decade after your appearance there. And we sort of went around to all of the, you know, special fashion places in New York. Um, and, and I was his uh, de facto uh, guide, though he did fine for himself, you know. But, yeah. he, he did pretty well for himself for sure look we always start this show by asking our guests what they're drinking i know kind of what you're drinking but what is it yeah i'm 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 drinking a manhattan which uh a perfect right was sort of a binoxious way to describe it but that's what bartenders call it uh half uh, rye because i think rye is the thing to use in a manhattan not bourbon that's that's a southern thing um and uh vermouth and the vermouth i use personally is something called Carpano and the Antica formula, which is, you know, supposed to be the original vermouth from Turin uh, that was made, you know, 400, 300 years ago or some craziness like that. Now you just called it the perfect Manhattan. Is that what I heard? Yeah, that, I mean, when it's 50-50, that's what you're supposed to call it. Some people like it two to one rye. So exactly. So it's the, it's the half dry, half sweet, basically. Exactly. Yeah, I think and so. Uh, and it's it's interesting because the Manhattan is one of those drinks which is really a classic. It is available pretty much all over the world. Um, originated in around 1880, they say at the Manhattan Club uh, in, in New York, um, and it has an extraordinary provenance. I mean, there's a lot of people who claim to have invented the Manhattan, though, because when you <laughs> dig into it, there's it's sort of all over the place, everywhere from the sort of Waldorf Astoria to reg to sort of bars and, and individuals in Manhattan, but it, the, the date is about right. It's, a, it's about the sort of end of the 1800s or 1900s, rather, 1880s. Um, and, it, and, it's, it, there, and there's lots of variations of this drink. Now, you don't like it with bourbon. In fact, your publicist or someone, because I've got it in my notes, <laughs> said that you think it's an abomination um, to, to, to have bourbon. That's quite a strong word from a branding guy. You know, I, I, I think uh, I am... Uh an originalist or a purist in a lot of ways and a little bit of a snob, but I like to think I'm a snob in, in, in the right ways and the ways that matter, right? So not uh, who you are or where you come from, but, 
but like if there's a drink that's special for a reason um you know and was made a particular way there's something to endorse that it's like you know I mean, if you're Italian and and being comfortable with pizza bagels, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't do that. Um, and and I feel the same way about you know lots of things, including cocktails. And and so yeah, I think you know rye was the original whiskey in a Manhattan, and I think it makes a big difference. Uh, bourbon is you know softer and sweeter. Rye is peppery, spicy, right? And I think uh, I think with the sweetness of the vermouth and the pepperiness pepperiness of the rye, that that, that works. So, yeah. yeah, so the one one sort of sets the other one off. Now, it's funny because I did a little bit of, of, of research into the Manhattan, as I normally do whenever my, you know, whoever my guest, whatever my guest is drinking, I like to sort of look into it a little bit deeper than I perhaps knew. And, you know, I found, and you may be familiar with this already, but William Schmitz um, create, wrote a, a book called The Flowering Bowl, which was published in 1891. And in there, he lists a recipe for the Manhattan, and this is how it goes. It says two dashes of gum, which is a sort of gummy syrup yeah. um, that they put in it. It's a sort of a simple syrup of sorts. Two dashes of, bit of bitters, a dash of absinthe, right? Absinthe. <laughs> when okay. absinthe yeah. Two thirds of a portion of whiskey and one third of a portion of vermouth. And this is a recipe for a Manhattan from 1891. So just when we talk about being a purist of these things, I'm You're always like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, there are so many things out there, people. So look, the point is, that's how he likes his Manhattan. And I've gone for a dry Manhattan right here, which is when you don't use the sweet vermouth. And one of my favorites, if everyone out there, if you want to try, uh, because like I said, there are a lot of different ways to cut a Manhattan, but, um, a, a black Manhattan is a really fun one to go with as well, which is where you swap out um, the vermouth completely and you use Amaro. Mm. And, and, and that is also really delicious. It's got those, it's got a lot of, uh, if you've ever had an Amaro, it's got a lot of sort of botanicals. It's a bitter, it's Italian, um, very delicious as well by itself over ice, uh, but also great in the Manhattan. So cheers, my friend. Uh, a pleasure. Cheers. <laughs> pleasure. Mm. Um, I've also had them with like a, a Punta Mace, um, which is another Italian liqueur. Famous in Milan means point and a half. It was the thing stockbrokers in, in Milan uh, drank. Um, uh, but I've always come back to the sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> the possibly vaguely original version. You said uh, a, po a point and a half. Now, isn't is that uh, is that in some reference to the the, the pinstripe on their suit? I yeah, it's a great question whether it's that or it's it's about a, a point and a half on the board, right? I don't know. Could be right, one or the other, or perhaps both, because I always hear that the the pinstripe on the suit was something to do with the numbers on the board as well, um, and the thicker the pinstripe in the UK had something to do with how many how successful you'd been. So oh, the more obnoxious you'd been, the bigger your pinstripes grew, the more successful you became and all these sorts of things. Yeah, before we get into, because there's so much I'd love to talk to you about with, when it comes to branding and marketing, because our worlds collide in that world. I, I'm, you know, obviously as a fashion photographer, have been responsible for marketing and branding campaigns through my imagery and also have worked as a consultant on many a brand. But as we talk about alcohol a lot on the show, I wanted to dive into the branding world and marketing world of alcohol. And obviously there is a, a, a Terramana, the, the rocks tequila has sort of exploded. It's breaking records left, right and center. They apparently sold 600,000 cases last year alone, which is I think a record by any stretch. Um, with a brand like Terramana, were you surprised that it was so successful? Uh, not anymore, right? And I, and I would say that is, uh deserves its success or look i mean it might be a terrific tequila uh but more importantly uh when you have the world's biggest box office star uh you know claiming it as his right 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 before that uh one one of the kardashians um maybe it was uh, i don't know chloe or, or, or 
or, or one of the, you know, the youngest Jenner, whoever it was, had their own tequila called 818. And it was the biggest. Uh, and, you know, the benefit of that was having two million and or two and a half million Instagram followers or what have you, right? So, so the ability for people to quickly market, and maybe you remember three or four years ago, uh, there was a problem in, in getting, you couldn't get Aperol. Right, which is another uh, aperitif, because everyone was buying it and using it to take pictures for Instagram with it, because it made such a lovely photograph. Right, so right. I think social media has really allowed uh, the success of 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 brands uh, immediately out of the gate. They don't have to grow in a way. Even a brand like Absolute, which at one time, uh, you know, was the vodka to drink, um, and and which is just a branding story essentially. Um, was uh, uh, successful, but needed time to grow. It, it happens so much faster now because we have such uh, direct contact with the audience. I mean, there are obviously a lot of celebrity alcohols out there. And, you know, one of the biggest issues that they suffer from is a lack of a sort of authentic story behind why they're associated with the brand whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I, I think when you look at what The Rock has done, and he's obviously kind of gone in deep, he's always making drinks on his own social media, he's clearly drinking it himself, he's there, he's popping the bottle, he's showing you inside his refrigerator, you get to see the sort of glamorous side of it, but then you also get to see it right next to his ice cream in his in his freezer type of thing. And, you know, and he's, it's sort of, it's, it's no holds barred. But at the same time, you know, there are inconsistencies in the story. And this is nothing about saying, you know, getting at the rocket, because I, I actually love it and I think it's done a great job. But it's interesting because on the bottles, it does say small batch, for example, you know, yet he's making 600,000 cases, right? So the, the logic doesn't, isn't, doesn't really add up there. You a know. lot of small batches. Um, a lot of small batches. But does, yeah. that, does that affect the consumer or does the consumer not really care? I, I think, right, there, there are those, those, folks who care and then those who don't right when when people ran to 818 which was kendall jenner's uh tequila i suspect uh you know not uh, many of them uh cared as much about the tequila as they did about the association right um and it, it being hers 818 was the area code in which she lived right it doesn't have anything uh to do with tradition or authenticity uh necessarily in the way it was branded so so i think you know there are those of us who are care and we're not gonna you know we're not gonna drink uh an alcohol that we don't like just because it's got a celebrity name attached to it but the, then you know as there always has been with endorsements and, and things like that the power of celebrity to get someone to try something whether it's booze or or or, or fashion right um uh is is profound uh, and it affects a lot of people is it possible these days do you think now with what's with the state of say the alcohol business to launch an alcohol successfully without celebrity i think it makes it that much harder uh, and you definitely have to have an interesting brand story but i think a lot of those stories can be concocted one of the great things we've seen in uh, the rise of direct-to-consumer marketing, right? So, uh, you know, that's everything from Warby Parker sunglasses to Mack Weldon boxer briefs or, or, or what have you, um, is that so many of them are able to tell a, a story that consumers find interesting and credible uh, and, and uh, uh, allow them to align themselves with the brand. So I would argue that you don't need you certainly need celebrity to reach the success that The Rock did with his tequila, right? I mean, that is why that tequila was a successful as a one year sort of or two year time period for sure. Exactly, right? In such a short time period. Um, but I think with with the right stories, uh, you you can uh, uh, create um, some interesting brands. And that's still true, even with all of the competition in the booze space. I think there's still opportunity. You know, I, I don't know what the next liquor is, right? Um, that was but... my next question, actually. I was gonna, I was gonna actually, you literally read my mind. I'm like, okay, I'd like to know where are we going next? Because, you know, clearly tequila's had a moment, having a moment, and it's still not really at saturation. Even though there are a lot of incredible amount of brands out there, it's still a fraction of the vodka market, of the whiskey market, the gin market even. But, you know, gin is having a research again yep. of its of its of its own i mean when you do you, these resurgences are they because of consumer demand or is it or if, i mean it seems more like it's a it's a play on by the big big sort of diagios out there the Pernod ricards out there who are like okay what can we do with our portfolio and shake it up 
Yeah, certainly is there, there's the opportunity for people people to, to grow uh, market share, right? And the big companies growing market share by introducing new brands and getting people excited about them. Just as often, I think, uh, these brands develop organically and then the big companies buy them. I, I, and, I, and I think the reason I, I would say they develop organically is because all of us as people, right, we're, we're all looking for the next thing all the time uh, to try something new to be able to impress our friends with our knowledge about something they don't know right so uh, when when gin has a moment and you know at first it's something quite simple or 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 mainstream even like hendrix suddenly that opens the door to allow a lot of other people to experiment that much uh, further and then if you were the guy uh, who thought you were special because you were drinking Hendrix and not, you know, uh, Tangare, um, you, you needed to go farther afield. And, and so I think, uh, I, I think there's still opportunity. I don't know what, it, I don't know if it's rum, I don't know if it's mezcal, I don't know if it's something that we haven't invented yet. Um, but I, I think, I think there's opportunity. You know, I thought cocktail culture was a thing 20 years ago. So after I worked at GQ, I worked at Esquire, and that was sort of the first moment of, of a resurgent cocktail culture. Uh, movies like Swingers were popular and so that this whole thing, you know, and I thought it was kind of done. And, and now, you know, in the last handful of years, it, it's uh, sort of the wave has crested again and it's even become that much more popular. So who knows where the end is? No, I mean, it, it, clearly RTDs have shaken up the cocktail space quite considerably with people being able to get a pretty good mixed cocktail done for them in a can or in a small bottle ready to go. Um, I, you mentioned Hendrix. I'm looking behind you and I, I love a man who has any, this, I'm just, I imagine this is your office you're in right now. I am, I am in the office, yeah. Uh, right over your, your left shoulder, it, it, I see a cocktail shaker and, and what looks like an array of bottles and some of which look like Hendrix. I might be wrong. Am I, am I correct or what am I looking um, at over there? There actually is not a bottle of Hendrix here, but 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 there is in fact at home because uh, my favorite summer cocktail is actually made uh, with Hendrix. Um, and so I, I, I like fashion, I switch with the seasons. I switch my drinks with the seasons. But you know, this this is a simple bar in the office because sometimes you just have to get through the day. You have to get through the day. Forget about the evening, folks. We're talking about this is what I, it's hard work at Inc. <laughs> Clearly, um, look. Let's just take it back a moment here because uh, you know, doing a little bit of research on you, I hear that, and maybe I'm wrong, and I feel like I must be. But you started off before you got into sort of becoming into entrepreneurialism and working at magazines as a writer and a journalist and everything else. You were a garbage man and a carpenter. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I had to put I had to put myself through school somehow, um, and uh, those were the two jobs that I managed. So I hung off the back of a, a garbage truck uh, um, in the garment district, actually. So there's a, there's an odd through line. It's like the drunkard's walk, which might be appropriate for for <laughs> for, for this podcast. But um, yeah, I actually uh, was a garbage man in the garment district, which was good because that meant. We were going into designer buildings and hauling out dry trash, not food, right? So our truck did not smell. Um, so that was tolerable. Uh, and and I worked as a carpenter. That's true. That sort of evolved into a hobby of uh, making furniture. Um, but uh, uh, throughout high school and college, and then a couple of years after, yeah, I worked as a carpenter, which, by the way, gave me the background to work at another big brand here in, in the United States called uh, This Old House, which is a television show that's been on the air for 45 years now. Um, so uh, all of these oddities have actually helped me in, in my career in one way or the other, as unlikely as they may have seemed at the time. So working at a garbage on a garbage truck in the garment district, you know, is really the epitome. It's almost a Zoolander byline. It's sort of the epitome <laughs> of you know where derelict came came from. You know, the, the sort of hobo chic. There it is, right there. You were picking it up every day. That's um, quite hilarious. Oh my god! Was, and this was a time when you know people would still push carts of of uh, racks through the streets uh, in the '30s uh, in Midtown here in New York, and we would go up in an elevator with these big meat hooks. We carried meat hooks uh, to each floor where there'd be a big box of cloth scraps and things like that. You would kick the box. And when you kick the box, all of the rats would jump out of it. And you want to do that because you use the meat hook to grab the box and pull it onto the elevator to go back down to the truck. And you didn't want to be stuck on the elevator uh, uh, with rats running all around. <laughs> 
right? I, I, I wouldn't. I mean, that's, that's terrifying me now as I'm describing it. It's revolting. How many rats are you talking about? You know, sometimes one, sometimes, a, I don't know, are they a family? Or are they just a group of friends? I don't know. But, you know, a handful. A bit, and big old New York style rats too, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, not tiny. Yeah, why are not, they hanging if there's not food why are they hanging out in the fashion i i, th I think you know i i a warm place in, in all the fabric a dark place some place to crawl through and of course they're always so you know someone would always throw a sandwich away in, in the non-food stuff but um so there's that <laughs> you are a very mysterious person i had no it's just ex most extraordinary sort of starting story it was started at the, at the bottom i love it the so this led you to gq Right. That was that the, the move. I, I went, you know, I, 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 um, I ended up at GQ as, uh, you know, another sort of the equivalent of the garbage man. I was a fact checker, so I, I had a, a journalism <laughs> degree, and I, I managed to get a job at GQ uh, as a fact checker. And I, and I would say that, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how much the garbage man from the garment district factored in to me getting hired, um, but uh, I, I will say um that it was a terrific opportunity to learn the media business uh from the ground up and that's really what it was the equivalent of a a mail room you know that you hear about like caa or someone right. you enter the mail room this was the equivalent of that and um was a terrific education uh, at a time when magazines were really you know so much more culturally significant than they are now um and uh it, it was it was fun you know, look, I mean, you're, you've had an interesting career trajectory, you know, regardless of where you started and what you might have done at college to get you through. But, you know, working at magazines like Details, Esquire, GQ, these are the leading, they were the leading and have been the leading voices in sort of men's pop culture, um, certainly for the past 20, 30 years. And was this something that you were interested in sort of prior to going to college? Were you sort of hoping to be a journalist in that world, in that in working for those sorts of magazines and speaking to men in that way? Um, no, not at all. Uh, I was actually um, an art student who one day uh, took me aside and she said, you know, um, your papers, you're a pretty good writer. Your canvases, not so much. Um, and maybe you better think about writing more than painting as a career. And and so she she you know in a way that might have seemed insulting to some people, but I took it uh, for what she intended. Um, set me on the path to journalism. But what what it 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 did was I was not mission driven the way some journalists are, right? Where 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 all they care about is writing a story and telling the truth, and all of those things. Those are all important to me. But I it's not how I got into the business. And so I was able to see. Uh, not just the editorial side of the business, but also the business side of, of the business. And working at GQ, I went from uh, fact checker to style editor. So I traveled with the fashion team a lot and understood how we actually got the bills paid, um, you know, through the largesse of, of, of fashion houses in, in Milan and Paris and in London and, and, and places like that, as, as well as New York. Um, and and it also exposed me to people who were doing all of that branding, right? So Giorgio Armani and Ralph Lauren and all of these uh, designers who were uh, created their own worlds. Um, and, and seeing that uh, gave me a business sense, but also allowed me to, I think, have much more of an entrepreneurial sense than a traditional journalist would have had. And so I used that then throughout my uh, magazine and other careers uh, to, to, to my advantage, I think, to, to understanding branding, how to tell a story, how to, how to create a different uh, world, you know, how to market and thinking everything is marketing. When you go to Giorgio Armani's Palazzo, you know, it is a representation, everything there is a representation of, of him and vice versa, right? So you understand the completeness of, 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 of a good brand story. When you go to, at that time, you know, you'd go to Ralph Lauren's uh, offices uh, on, on Madison Avenue and you'd step out of the elevator into a country manor, right? <laughs> a manor house. Um, and and the staff would be walking around in, in clothes that were there. There's the cowboy, there's the, you know, there's the, the prepster, there's someone who is at Eaton, right? Like you just saw this on the floor. Um, and to be immersed in that kind of environment was, uh, I think, a terrific education in how to how to tell a good brand story.
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I actually as well used to shoot for Ralph Lauren and I remember that exact experience literally verbatim what, stepping off the elevator and you felt that you were on a sort of a movie set with people styled from head to toe in a look, you know, you know, that was absolutely on brand and various different parts of the brand too because obviously a brand like you know ralph lauren has the preppy has the sort of guy going to eat and has the cowboy has all the different elements to it and i was shooting the purple campaign and so that was its own kind of uh, look and feel and vibe as well and everyone who worked in there looked a certain way and you know are new brands that are coming up in the fashion industry are they adhering to that same sort of brand rule and strategy as far as the, keeping the brand co coherent throughout? I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think to, to quite the same degree. And I think it's, it's okay for who we are and where we are now, right? So in a lot of ways, Ralph Lauren created an, an entire world that we all bought into. If you tried to create that same world today, it, it wouldn't wash, right? A lot of it would be seen as inauthentic. One of the characters I left out was the Indian princess, and you would see someone dressed as an Indian princess, an American Indian princess, Native American, walking yeah. down the hall, right? And you you, you can't do that so, sort of thing today. And, and then more broadly, I think people are uh, just as apt to fall and to and follow trends but not in the quite the same mass way right so so the world has become a lot smaller in a lot of ways so you can be very successful with a smaller group of people than you could be in in, in the in the past right I, I think um ralph lauren was someone everyone in america knew i don't know that that would be the case today with any new designer um, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, designers these days have, you know, they're mostly known by their brand names versus, you know, which may be something just a, a random word that you've or, heard of. Or ones that existed 30 or 50 years ago and that they're now the creative directors for, right? Um, because it's so hard to launch a new new brand to have that that great of of an impact on, on culture like, you know, I don't know, Dior or Chanel or, or, or what have you. I, I think it would be astonishing to me to see another organically grown, uh, you know, um, uh, Versace, let's say, or, or, or someone like that, right? I, I mean, I, I look at my kids and I've got, you know, I've got a 16-year-old boy and a 13-year-old daughter and they are influenced by fashion from all kinds of places that, that I personally was never influenced by fashion by, you know, so whether it's, you know, the basketball players that they're into and the sort of shoes they're wearing to social media applications that I did. Well, obviously, we didn't have them as kids, but things like TikTok and what someone's dancing to and wearing. Do you think that it's social media has made it easier for brands or to, 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 to sort of get out there? Or do you think it's actually made it more muddled? Um, because there's, there's, there's so much stuff going on. It's complicated to, to know who you're marketing even to. Yeah, I think I think uh ultimately you can use those tools to understand well who you're marketing to but I, I think to actually think you can be a mass market brand in the way you could in the past is is a very hard thing to do um i think uh, you know the the designers and influencers your children follow are important to your children right now but another set of children would be following someone uh, different and 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 so on and you know a year from now your kids might be on to someone else my 10 year old is you know in another place entirely the multiplicity of of channels through which we communicate and with each other and and brands communicate uh, with us just means there's more fracturing and that's terrific because it gives someone the opportunity to be entrepreneurial, start a brand younger, but it's also, uh, or, or, or with less resources, um, but it also limits, I think, its ultimate uh, growth opportunity uh, because you have to then spend so much money across so many platforms and means so many things to so many different people uh, who are now very tribal um, that it's, it's just not as easy. How, how do you, you know, really stand out in today's marketplace? I mean, what 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 are your, what your recommendations to young brands or, or and, and people trying to get out there to really make a name for yourself? Are there certain avenues that you suggest that they go down? Or I mean, obviously the and how do you stay relevant is another thing because if you look at the brands like Ralph Lauren and Versace and Armani and Balenciaga, my son who's sort of into fashion has heard of a few of them. 
but only if they're worn by basketball players, basically. Right. You know, otherwise, it's not of interest. So is it all about dressing the basketball players, which sort of doesn't sort of work for all of the brands in a way? Um, no, it does not work for all of the brands. Um, and uh, ultimately, right, in, in some ways, we can be really cynical about this and say, you know, it, it can work because the, the fact is, you know, I think Giorgio Armani is one of the very few designers who actually made himself or, or had revenues of a billion dollars a year, made himself a billionaire selling suits, right? Selling two at that time, 2000, maybe they're $5,000 now suits. Ralph Lauren, on the other hand, you know, yeah, he sold suits and he had beautiful suits. You, you talked about purple label. That was gorgeous stuff, is gorgeous stuff. But uh, he also, you know, sold a lot of polo shirts at, you know, 50 bucks a piece. And those are much more uh, attainable. So in some ways, you know, uh, cracking the mass market code is really useful because you, you, you know, you get more sales of $25 things or $50 things than $2,500 or, or, or $5,000 things. But um, so, so I think that's something uh, to keep in mind. But what I tell uh, young businesses when I, I consult them, so just really quickly, I, I was quite entrepreneurial in media. There are a lot of digital things, television things before magazines were, were, were doing those kinds of things. And Ultimately, we sold to this old house brand that I was working for, which was at that time part of the world's largest entertainment company, now does not exist, uh, Time Warner, uh, to private equity. And I went out on my own. I had done enough in media and thought I could be a consultant to entrepreneurs. And ultimately, that's how I ended up back in media at Inc., which is sort of the voice of the American entrepreneur. I, I think that all of the folks that through my experiences and what I've learned and those who I've seen as successful um, and, and that uh, I've studied, I'm also a, a professor of entrepreneurship. And so I have students do research on these things. So it's not just me being smart. They've, they've, they've helped me understand this stuff. But um, you know, to be a successful brand today, I think you, you need to, to be authentic in some fashion, right? People want to spend money with people, not with corporations anymore. I think to be successful, you have to have an interesting origin story because like we talked about, just like whether it was the cowboy or the Indian princess or, or, or the kid at an English prep school, um, uh, you know, it, a story is still important to people. Um, I, I think it's really important for brands today to be non-transactional in their communication. So we have so many ways to communicate with each other that why, why every time, uh, uh, you can't uh, be selling something. You have to entertain and educate too, right? And then you get that person on your side and then you sell something, right? So being non-transactional uh, through social media and all the other ways we have of communicating, I think are, are some important things. And, and ultimately to be the thing that people, the most people want, but just with a little bit of difference um, makes a huge difference in the end. And that can be in the way you're marketed or it can be the design of the product. I mentioned Mac Weldon before, which is, they make men, you know, they became known for making men's uh, boxer briefs. And um, I, I, I not endorsed, I don't, I am not paid by them, but I love them, right? And I'll say this, I love them because they were just a little bit different than others on, on the market. The band on the leg was a little bit wider, so it never rolled up. Um, the material was just a little bit more high quality. The the darts uh, in the back of the waistband, and which was you know a little bit higher of a waistband, so even if you ate too much, it didn't roll over. You know all of these just slight differences, which maybe cost you know a dollar or two per per uh, brief, allowed them to charge what you know uh, main floor department stores were were charging. For, you know they could charge for one what you'd get in a three pack on the main floor of the department store, right? And and so that differentiation I think is is really important because in a lot of ways we have so much information at our fingertips um, that that I think you know being able to have that difference it is a difference to the consumer. And then the last thing I, I think that's important is that consumers really want companies that are in some fashion and not all on the same side of the political spectrum necessarily, but are socially responsible in some way. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important thing for new, new consumers. Um, so those are a handful of the things that I would say are important as you think about launching your business. And I think that's true of whatever kind of business you'd enter. So interesting. So interesting. You know, again, talking about my son, you know, he's, he's 16 years old and here's a kid who, 
you know, this is so interesting because it's, I don't think it would necessarily have been possible when I was a kid, but, you know, during the pandemic, as so many kids were stuck at home and, you know, working from home to do their schoolwork and what have you, you know, he's never, was never, I had never really identified him as a particular, as an artist. He was always a, a sort of an artistic, just child in general, but not necessarily an artist. And you know, I remember going into his room at one point, sort of eight months into the pandemic and, you know, he sort of hit his computer and I said, well, what are you working on? And he's like, oh, I've just been drawing. And I, I what on what? And he's like, oh, I just was playing around in one of your programs. You've got one of your Photoshop-y type programs. And and I had a look and he had created these sort of funny characters, these sort of monster, monsterish kind of characters. And um, long story short, he had done a hundred of them over the past sort of eight months and it had a whole bunches of them. And I, I was like, oh, these are super cool. They're really fun. They're really entertaining and different. And, um, and he said, well, you know, I, I, oh, I'm just doing them for fun. I don't really want to show them to anybody or anything like that. And I'm like, well, would you? And you know, he said, well, OK, maybe. And I said, well, put them on your Instagram. It took him again another four months before he started to post this on his social media. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I think people often wonder, to your point, authenticity being so crucial, right? Here's a kid. He had a small public account, but it had a few hundred followers. And he started to put them up there and what have you. I reposted a couple saying, oh, look at my son. Aren't these cool? Aren't these fun? He then decided to launch NFTs. I was uh, just going to ask if he turned them into NFTs. So I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. So he he launched a series. I said, well, he, he was his idea, not mine, because I had really no knowledge or understanding of NFTs. And he said to me, Dad, if I'm going to do anything because they're digital and I did them on the computer, what happens if I launch them as NFTs? You know, what is that something I should do, could do? And I'm like, well, have a go. What We'll see what happens. And he launched a whole series of them as NFTs. He valued them at about $400 a piece. And he sold out everything in an hour. Okay, yeah. it was one of those overnight success stories. The president of Time magazine, Keith Grossman, bought one. You know, um, Nyla Hayes, who's a big NFT artist, bought one. Um, you know, Halim Flowers, who's a celebrated uh, artist, bought one and changed his profile picture to one of Jack's pictures. And all of this happened out of nowhere, right? And and it was a sort of a, an explosion of success for this young sixteen-year-old kid. Now, you know that his own story was that of authenticity right and and just being real in the moment is there any other way to really be successful i, I mean obviously we've talked about alcohol and you stick a celebrity on it but if you're not going to do that and you're, and you're it, how, and how do you get noticed because obviously with me someone like i'm i have access to i have a million followers of my own over so i was able to help him right yeah. but it, so that helped you know, it's, it's this sort of combination of things, you know, and then it's now spiraled. It's only six months. It's only what he started. He did this in November of last year. So he's already on to his fifth or sixth commission. City Fields, I think, want to do a mural with him now, yeah. you know. And so it's, yeah, no, it's, it's sort of exploded in a, in a strange way. But, you know, what, what, how do you class that? What is that called, that kind of success? Uh, you know, is, is there a word for it? It's, it's, it's sort of entrepreneurial, but at the same time, it's, it's just sort of what's happening we, because we don't really think of ourselves as necessarily as entrepreneurs. I, I think it's, it's quite entrepreneurial. I would, I would call it uh, something to be jealous of, <laughs> um, quite, quite frankly. But, you know, like in another time, right, he could have uh, made custom hoodies, Right. right. That's how he would have sold those. And he would have sold them at a local skate shop or something. So he just he did custom hoodies and sold out in one day. He did a whole <laughs> drop of those as well. He's just about to do his second drop. So he's in on all of these different um, verticals. The, kid, the kid's brilliant and quite entrepreneurial, I would say. Um, I, I think you want to back that horse. Um, right. I, I, I think I think, uh, look, he, there's there's something in in his uh drawings that connect with people, right? So we could say that uh, you helped boost him through your own social media account. But the fact is, you know, lots of people mention lots of stuff on Twitter and Instagram and, and all the time. Um, and and it, it doesn't matter. There's something there we're connecting with, just like, you know, there was something we connected with with really special designers or special musicians, uh, you know, back in the day. And, um, I think uh, that has to be present in the fact that he was selling, you know, whether it's the hoodies or the NFTs himself, and it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't Macy's selling the hoodies and it wasn't 
Facebook or whoever is going to be, you know, the 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 broker of the metaverse um, was doing it makes a difference to people. Um, so I see they see that differentiation. They see something special, and they know there's someone who they admire, they want to be like, who they appreciate actually doing the making and who they're giving their money to. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's funny you should mention Macy's. They were his first commission. <laughs> straight so, off the bat. So what do I know? <laughs> I mean, it, it's literally weird that you would say that. Out of every company and everybody's out there, Macy's called him within two weeks of his first launch of NFTs and commissioned him to do a mural outside of their Brooklyn store, which is 14 foot by 20 foot, and it's still Amazing. there. Amazing. So, and he painted that on his 16th birthday. And then he did an NFT of the picture and auctioned it off, uh, benefiting the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which goes back to your giving back to philanthropy. Yeah. I, and I think that's that's important, right? So uh, it seems like he's doing everything right. What, 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 what is your definition of an entrepreneur? Look, I think uh, there's the the definition we have here at Inc., which is someone who sort of, uh, you know, has an idea uh, to to create a business that is somehow uh, going to manifest the future or change our, our future. But I think uh, there are ways to think about it much more simply than than that. And it, it is uh, what I would say it is it, it it's the the person. Um, who's always asking what if, right? And so it's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about here's how things are today, but what if we did it somewhat differently? You know, this bothers me. I want to ch change it and do it this other way. So it's always questioning the status quo um, and suggesting, you know, it, 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 it's the guy who, you know, uh, made a black uh, made, made, a, made a black Manhattan, right? It's like, what if we did this, right? And that's creating new opportunity. And lots of times uh, that connects with people. Uh, lots of times that can be something just for an intimate group of a few people, but it still requires what I you know, think of as entrepreneurial thinking. When you, when you think about being an entrepreneur and all those things you mentioned, timing is so important, right? Like, when you, you know, if you're ahead of your time, it doesn't really help, you know, so having a brilliant idea or you know, so how does one sort of figure that out? Or is that something that just is luck oriented? I, I think I think you can bring some measure of of uh, action to what is, is is luck. So let me a really quick story. There's a man named Aaron Bally grew up uh, in a Kurdish village in, in Turkey. Uh, very proficient in, in mathematics, first person uh, to leave his village, um, came to the United States on a math scholarship. He had a handful of ideas. Um, what would be uh, the thing that changed people's lives the most back in my village in Turkey? Um, he thought, well, education is, is one and, and healthcare is another. Um, and, and being here in the States and being exposed to a lot of people and, and, and technology and things like that, I think he uh, was at Stanford or Caltech or, or, or someplace, he, he came to an understanding, he told me the story, he came to an understanding that, um, you know, the idea is, is one thing, but then you have to have the technology and then you have to have the consumer behavior. And all three of those things have to intersect. And so for him, looking at the landscape, the technology that existed and the consumer behavior that existed for one of his ideas uh, was education. And he founded Udemy, right, which is now or is about to go public. He knew that was the first step. He didn't think we were there with the technology for healthcare. But after founding Udemy a few years later, he's now the founder of a company and a really significant company that's taken tens of millions of dollars of investment from all the big VCs uh, in healthcare. It's called Carbon Health, and he's basically changing the way primary care works and how patients uh, are tracked and take their medication or follow up on appointments and all of those things. But he knew those three things had to come together, the idea, the technology, and the consumer behavior to work. And it really, it was the pandemic that accelerated his opportunity with healthcare too, right? Because he's a technologist. He, you know, we went to remote visits with our uh, healthcare providers and all of those things, afraid to go to the hospital. All of this, that timing helped him, hugely important. I think the other things that are important in this world 
are are who your partner is. I, th I think we take for granted, right? Because we always see the successful uh, partner. You know, like we like, take it back to the fashion world. You know, we've got Dolce Gabbana, right? Like the two of them together, perfect partners. Um, but we don't see all of the broken partnerships. Um, and and you know, the the fact is, uh, they're incredibly important and and difficult. Uh, to work out, but when they do, they're really special. And then you have, and and it, and it's and it's why almost in all cases you have founders, you know, pair founder pairs, right? So you had Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, for example, Bill Gates and and Paul Allen, right? So they were complementary, they were terrific partners, and they each could do the thing the other other couldn't. But that that's hard to find. I when I left uh, journalism for the first time, I I was the co-founder in a wellness startup, um, and we were uh, in initial market traction. We were quite successful. Uh, won a global uh, a global wellness competition for Hilton hotels. Had a patent. We just were terrible as as partners. And and at a certain point, I had to walk away from it um, because it was you know it's like a bad marriage, I suppose. Um, and and I think we overlook that. And 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 ultimately, that applies to all of these things. Is is luck right and we there's a lot we can do to make luck but but ultimately um sometimes we're smiled on more than than other times and and those folks who are, are smiled on you know bring the same amount of specialness as someone else has but they're the ones who got the smile and that someone else didn't necessarily you know you just mentioned the health industry and obviously that it has had been both shaken and stirred in the pandemic um but um fitness industry as well has had a huge shakeup. Gyms have gone bust. They have had, you know, obviously they've had to close their doors and you've seen a huge research, you know, not even a, not a resurgence, but a, just a, a sort of a start of this digital media and digital media play in fitness uh, with gyms and obeys the beach bodies of this world, the Pelotons of this world. And then you look at what's happening to Peloton now, you know, obviously there's been a huge shift in the market. The market share is down massively. You know, do you think, or how does one market digitally um, successfully, do you think, in, in the fitness space? How does one um, differentiate? I, I think that's a hard thing, but I think Peloton did it initially, right, where they 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 brought instructors uh, to, to people who were really special. And they were right they position themselves as a content company you were you wanted to reconnect with the person who you saw on the screen the day before and and i i think that that was really important ultimately it's interesting because i i'm somewhat or was somewhat of a gym rat and then uh didn't uh, go to the gym and uh in in a series of like midnight phone calls and 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 uh uh the buys online of e-commerce e stuff whenever like a product at the beginning of the pandemic you couldn't get any fitness related equipment i'd wake up at midnight you know i wake myself up at two o'clock in the morning to go on websites to see did someone get a set of dumbbells in and, and order them and then you know drive all over the tri-state area looking for uh, uh to pick them up but um i i actually put a gym in my my in my house um because i wasn't going to the gym and and i have to say like you know i don't like it um, I have great equipment and I have a couple of TVs and it's only one flight down from, you know, my, my kitchen. So I, I, you know, but there's an energy uh, that's missing uh, when I'm in, in uh, my home gym alone. Um, so some of, of these digital startups in the fitness space capture that. So Peloton has captured that to a large extent, right? Apple is trying to capture some of that with their classes, but it's, it's just sort of not the same as the you know, walking into that, you know, humid space, uh, loud music and lots of bodies that got you to the gym and got you through your workout, you know, in, in quickly. And so I do wonder if if uh, Peloton is sort of a, a canary in a coal mine in some respects uh, uh, of what uh, will happen to other uh, fitness companies um, as we uh, get back to normal. And I suspect it's somewhere in between. Those high flyers will settle down uh, to somewhere comfortable uh, that they make money and that evaluation for them in the public markets makes sense and people will 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 have those things, but they'll also return to gyms, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, clearly there's there was some sort of miscalculation. I mean, there, there seemed to be a lot of brands that were, or, and, and investors that were of the thought that, 
you know, people's minds had been changed permanently and that they would never go back to a gym. And they, but, but clearly we seek team um, sport and team, yeah. you know, sort of involvement. And, and, and by team, it's not just on a, an app where you're on a leaderboard. You know, it's also about physically being with someone and talking to that individual one-on-one -on -one and almost sensing them in a sort of primal way that they're there next to you, challenging you and being around you or pushing you forward, right? I think that's absolutely right. And you just reminded me, you know, I, my 10 year old swims, but uh, he refuses to join a swim team because he doesn't want to compete. But when he's in the pool and he sees someone gaining on him, he he competes. Right? So I think I think there's this thing of us just being out with other people and urging each other on whether it's in a public space, whether uh, it, it's at a bar or a restaurant, or whether it's in the gym, that, that really matters. And I, and I hope like we haven't lost a generation of, of, of people who have gotten comfortable uh, at home and just staying at home. But I know that when I started to return to the office, I was one of the only people. Now half my staff is is back and, and willingly, we didn't have to force them to come back. And, and, and I know that I laugh more uh, every day uh, when I'm with these people than I did when I was at home. The ideas I had walking from you know my kitchen, getting a cup of coffee, up the three flights of stairs to my home office was were, were not as profound as the ones I have when I'm out on a commute, right? And going back and forth to, to an office and seeing other people and being confronted with other ideas. Um, David Droga, uh, the, the founder of uh, Droga5 and, and advertising genius, you know, calls those moments sort of uh, the, the, record, uh, the record scratch of, of innovation, right? Where, where you're sort of your, your worldview is suddenly just bumped up against um, and you have to confront an idea that you'd never seen before. And, and all of those things happen, I think, in, in person so much more. Uh, readily than they, they do uh, digitally. I, I love it that you just mentioned David's name. David happens to be a dear friend of mine. Um, and for all of you out there, Droga5 was one of the sort of most innovative, uh, you know, marketing advertising companies out there, but he's now the CEO of Accenture. Uh, and um, I actually just a few weeks ago photographed him for a cover of Australian magazine. But David and I, our kids were at the same school. So um, I've known well, and he has a house not far from me. I'm actually in Woodstock, New York, and he has a house for me at Hudson. Talking about people not going to work, we photographed him at his Accenture offices, which are you know four or five levels of you know thousands and thousands of square feet, where you know literally ten thousand employees can be, and there wasn't a single person there. We had the office, the whole place to ourselves, and we ran around with security. I mean, it was it is extraordinary what's happened to the world. Uh, and hopefully we're going to get back, but it's amazing where we've been, where we're going and what's going on in the world of marketing now. Yeah, I think so. And I, my hope is that, you know, we've learned a lot of interesting lessons during the pandemic. We've learned some measure of humanity matters. Um, we've, we've learned that uh, it's not just about uh, the money, but where the money is coming from and where it's, it, it's going to. And I think we've uh, learned to some extent, and I hope we keep this, is that businesses um, can make a difference and not just a difference uh, in a PL or on a, a stock ticker, but make a difference in people's lives. And I think if we all hold on to those things, um, you know, the pandemic will not just have been uh, an awful moment. There will have been some positives we realized uh, because of it. It's, it's such a pleasure talking to you. You, you know, you're, you've got such a great perspective on life. And, and I, you know, I've been following you actually just through your career on, on many levels and I, your name has come up multiple times and I was very pleased when all of a sudden you suggested that I speak to you and it was you know which was a little different from a lot of my usual guests although we do every once in a while dip into more serious conversations which I love and it's you know I think my my listeners too really get a kick out of actually getting some take back and some feedback and some real answers you know to real questions and you know Inc magazine and I and I've only got a couple more minutes with you, but you know I know that you originally didn't want to go to Ink Magazine, but you're there now. You're doing an extraordinary job. You've made a lot of differences, and you know you mentioned it's the magazine for entrepreneurs out there. You know, what are you hoping people get from Ink now that you're there? I, th I think a, a couple of things uh, really quickly is that we uh, so many of us have an entrepreneurially uh, entrepreneurial impulse, and I want people to understand that that's 
awesome and that they can take that far if they want to, but it's never going to be easy, right? I, I think there's this, uh, you know, there's there's sort of this culture of startup porn basically that exists where it's, you know, we see the overnight success story and ignore all of all of the hard work. And the uh, and and I'm sure as someone you know who's worked for himself as a photographer, you felt this when when you're responsible for the marketing and for the revenue and for whether or not your family is going to take home money if you have an assistant, whether her family or his family is going to take home money. Those are enormous pressures, and and I think acknowledging those things uh, are really important and acknowledging the burden founders. Uh, carry sure some of them can get really you know fantastically successfully wealthy right Jeff Bezos Mark Zuckerberg whoever but that that's not everybody uh, and in fact most of uh, most of uh, you know businesses actually fail and that's something to be mindful of as well ninety percent of startups uh, fail but I think you know if I can uh, do one thing it will help people realize that. There are tools out there to sort of pave a path to a different future. Um, uh, and it's not going to be easy. And it's OK that it's not easy because there are people like us to support you uh, along the way and, and, and acknowledge that, you know, anything uh, that is, is, is worthwhile, um, you know, does not come easy. Before I let you go, we've got one thing on the show called Last Orders. It's a, it's a series of rather fun, rapid fire questions. The very first one is movie and a cocktail. If you, um, Scott, could have a drink with any character from any movie, what would the character be? What would the movie be? And uh, what would the drink be? Well, I, I hate to be obvious, uh, but I think it would be a Vesper with Vesper uh, Lynn from Casino Royale. I, I have to say it was an odd thing for me. I've never been so affected by uh, a, a villainous's death as I was in that first uh, Daniel Craig uh, Bond movie. Um, but if it, if it were not that, I think it would be whatever uh, Idris Elba is pouring uh, as, as a Bond who, frankly, I think deserves to be the next Bond. Wait a second. Uh, I've had to say, are you about you giving something away that we don't no, know? No, I, I, I know nothing. I have no, I just, I'm just saying that I think. Because you know, that was rumor. That was yeah, rumor. It was but rumor, was, right? But then there was a female black bond, and so then it kind of went, oh, well, maybe it was BS. And now yeah, you're saying this. Now you're going to set the rumors off. No, again. no, I know nothing. I just think he would have made a terrific bond. That, 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 that's all. And he I would have had any drink he wanted to, 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 to drink. And by uh, the way, going back to my 16-year-old son, why not? He said to me yesterday, Idris Elba would be a great new bond out of nowhere. <laughs> and he, I, don't, I was like, yeah, yes, he would. So there you go. That boy is wise beyond his years. Who would play you in the movie of your life? <laughs> um, uh, gosh, uh, Lord Voldemort. Uh, I don't know. Any bald white guy with a SAG card, I think, um, would be uh, okay. Uh, you know, Brian Cranston, Michael Chiklis, Bruce Willis. Wow, that's quite, a, that's quite a, that's quite a, that's, Malkovich. That's you know, it just it just someone who's who's bald. I think works Pitbull if he wants to do the crossover. I, think. I was thinking Vin Diesel really for you, but anyway. So actually, I I feel like they uh, somewhere between uh, Wallace Shawn on the one hand and Vin Diesel, I'd be comfortable with. Like, but not either extreme. I mean, and you're not even naturally bald. Let's face it. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fantasy dinner party three uh, guests dead or alive who would they be this is a hard one uh and also shows my age but i'm i'm gonna say um i find steve martin absolutely fascinating as a, a, a creative person um comedian musician uh, a novelist uh i just watched uh you know thanks to thanks to the pandemic i just watched only murders in the building which is a, a new a series he has with Martin Short that was just terrific. So I'd, I'd, I'd put him, and I, I think I'd like it to be serious, right? And, I, and not necessarily a lot of my um, idols, because I think there's a risk in meeting your idols, right? So I think- Disappointment. I, I think, right, exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I watched Bruce Springsteen, who's a childhood idol of mine, another Jersey boy, on, on, um, on uh, the Stephen Colbert show, and he seemed uncomfortable. And I could not accept the fact that, you know, the boss 
would be uncomfortable. And I don't want that experience at dinner. So I, I would say, uh, I mean, maybe like living or dead, David Bowie, I would love to have there. He'd be fascinating. And, and maybe, uh, you know, there's a, there was a brilliant um, uh, American TV host named Dick Cavity, still alive, but not doing TV anymore. And he uh, um, talks about his mental health. He was hilariously funny. And he actually had long conversations with a guest. If you could ever watch him talk to people on YouTube, you'll see him like have a conversation with Paul Simon about how Paul Simon wrote a song. And it's kind of astonishing, hilarious, serious, uh, like just the whole thing. And I, so, so I think, you know, I think the four of us could have a good time. There you go, for sure. In fact, I want in on that dinner party. Okay, go to drinking song. Uh, uh, I, I, so not an English drinking hall kind of song, but I, I don't know, comfortably numb, I think would, would be good. Um, and not, not, you're not, you know, it could be um, like, there's actually speaking of David Bowie, there's a terrific uh, cover of, of that Pink Floyd song by Eddie Vedder and David Bowie. So like, that would be it. That would Comfort be a, it's a great one. And the final question, shaken or stirred, Scott? Well, it just depends on the drink, doesn't it? There you go. There you have it, people. Uh, Scott Omelanik. 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 You say it. Uh, I, you said it before. Omelanik. Omelanik. Uh, it's Ukrainian. Omelanik is the way you're supposed to say it. But Scott oh, that, is the way. That's the way I want to say it. Scott Omelanik. Uh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, but, That'll but do. Scott works. There you go. Scott O works. It, it all works. You are a genius. Thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure, Nigel. Editor in chief of Inc. Magazine, Inc.com. What's next for you? Uh, I, I'm going to have another Manhattan. There we <laughs> go. And everybody else out there, this is the Shaken and Stirred show. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. All the best. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. This podcast was produced and edited by Embassy Road.